Well, good morning, Cornerstone. If you have a Bible with you, then uh, I would encourage you to point that Bible to the book of Ephesians. If you're new here, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one from the chair in front of you. Uh, You'll find our reading today in, in the chair Bible on page 977, Ephesians chapter 4. Look for the big, bold number four. We'll start there at the beginning. We're taking a break from what we normally do. Um, Normally, we work through books of the Bible, uh, one little paragraph at a time. We're taking a break from that, and we're working on a series that uh, we've called The Anatomy of a Church. So we're looking at the various parts of the church, how they function, how they work together. Um, And I think technically, we should have called this series The Physiology of a Church, um, rather than the anatomy of the church. But I went to Botkins, and we don't use big words in Botkins, so I didn't know that that's what that meant. Um, actually, in Botkins, big words scare people, so we don't, we don't, we don't do use them. So if you're visiting with us, it's going to be a little bit different than we normally do. Um, uh, but there is no better place for you to be this morning as a visitor. Um, we're going to take on this one subject. We're going to kind of bounce around to various parts of the Bible, so uh, be, be ready. I'll call out the page numbers if you're using one of the black Bibles um, so that you can follow along with us. We'll pick up where we left off last Sunday, and if you missed last Sunday, uh, thanks to our tech team, you can go on the website and you can listen to it, you can re-watch it if you like, um, but that would be helpful to kind of help us uh, kind of get up to speed. I'll do a quick review before we get going, but it would be good for you to kind of get caught up on this series. Ephesians chapter 4, I'll read verse 1 all the way down to verse 16, then we'll pray and we will get to work. All in all, it should be about 45 minutes or so. The big idea, you can find this on the back side of your worship guide, the big idea this morning is Jesus Christ has gifted to his church men called elders To help God's people affirm the gospel and affirm those who belong to it. So Jesus Christ has gifted to his church men called elders to enable and to equip and to help the church to do her job using the keys, as we talked about last week, to affirm the gospel of Jesus Christ and to affirm those who belong to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So a couple of things and uh, we'll get to work. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. I, therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope. That belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. 
And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the body, who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. God of all mercy and grace, we ask that you would continue to show your kindness to your people this morning and now through the reading of your word, the explanation of it, the application of it. Lord, teach us what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be a son of God, a daughter of God, a member of the household of God. Would you equip us through your word to do the work of ministry, the building up of the body of Christ until we all reach mature manhood to the measure, the stature of the fullness of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Last week, the big idea was that Jesus Christ had given to his church authority to affirm the gospel and to affirm those that belong to the gospel. He gave his church the authority to, def- to affirm the what of the gospel and the who of the gospel. And thus, a church which is healthy is one in which her members are actively involved in affirming what the Bible teaches, applying that truth to their lives, and then helping others to do the same. For some of us, this may be a, an entirely new paradigm for church. Because if that's true, what that means is that to be a Christian means at least three things. One, a healthy Christian is one who knows what the gospel is. They know what the Bible says. They've studied the Bible themselves. They've believed what the Bible teaches, and they've begun the process of applying the Bible to themselves. It also means that a healthy Christian is one who knows something of the spiritual condition of those around them. A healthy Christian is someone who knows something of the spiritual condition of those members of their own church. And three, a healthy Christian is one who is involved in helping others follow Christ. A healthy Christian is someone who's involved in helping others follow Christ. Well, I hope you see how much of a tremendous gift this is to us. The kindness of God, not only in 
showing that he's, commi- he's committed to our eternal joy, but he's also committed to our joy in this life. He has sent Jesus to absorb God's wrath for our sin. And upon trusting in Jesus, God adds us, adopts us into his family, the church. And he gives every one of us a part in helping others to do the same. Helping others follow Jesus is the privilege of every follower of Jesus. Well, that was last week. We see this again repeated in Ephesians chapter 4, which we have just read. Paul, the apostle, is writing from jail, and he urges the church in Ephesus in verse 1 to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And we often speak of calling, but we usually mean occupation. We usually mean the call to a profession, a trade. God is calling me to become an accountant. Or God is calling me to start a business. Or maybe God is calling me to get married. Or maybe God is calling me to motherhood or to foster care. And it's fine to use the word calling in that way. It's just we need to understand the Bible doesn't exactly use calling in the same way. Consider the word calling in 1 Timothy 1.9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. What calling do we have that we have received that came not because of our works, but because of the grace of God in Christ? Well, it's the call to repent of our sins and turn and follow Jesus and be saved. It's the call to take up Jesus' purpose for our own life, to die to our own purpose for our own life and follow His. It's what we've been saying all along, that it's the call to help others follow Christ to the glory of God. Well, that should relieve all of us because I think it's important for all of us to find our calling in this life. But it kind of means that you're off the hook figuring out whether God would have you be a physical therapist or a software engineer or an assembly line worker or a a parcel carrier or a professional dog walker or a mother. You're calling where you will find satisfaction in this life is bringing glory to Christ, helping others follow him. As you treat patients, as you design software, as you put together engines on an assembly line, as you deliver mail, as you walk dogs, as you make mac and cheese and change diapers. This is what Paul calls later the work of ministry. Skip down in Ephesians 4 to verse 12. He describes the work of the ministry like this. It's the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
That's the work of ministry. In other words, it's to help others follow Jesus and become like him. That is our collective call. That is our collective privilege. And to that end, God does not leave us alone. He gives us help. The Bible says that Jesus gave us gifts. He gave his people, the church, gifts to equip them to do the work of ministry. There are four of them, maybe five, depending on how you read. Verse 11 In verse 8, Paul calls them gifts, and in verse 11, he names the gifts. He calls them the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Apostles, prophets, and evangelists, we'll save those guys for another time. Shepherds and teachers will take up our time together today. Now, if you're reading verse 11, if you're a Bible nerd, you should probably understand there are, uh, the reason there's some confusion as to whether there's four in that list or five in that list is because in the original language in Greek, there's no definite article in front of teachers. It says the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. This has led many Bible scholars to think that shepherd and teachers are the same office, which is not that hard to believe. Um, When you do a study on what the Bible teaches about elders and pastors, you're going to find that the Bible uses interchangeable words for this office. The Bible will, even in the translation of the Bible that you may be reading today, when we're reading verse 11, it may have said pastor instead of shepherd. That's because the Bible uses the word shepherd, pastor, elder, overseer interchangeably for the same office. So I just want to be clear, as we're studying through this, an elder is a pastor, and a pastor is an elder. If we understand the Scriptures correctly, we understand the Scriptures to teach that a church is led by elders, not one pastor with a board of elders, but elders. The pastor is an elder, the elders are pastors. They're all shepherds, they're all overseers. It's all the same office. So again, what is the difference between an elder and a pastor? The spelling. That's the difference between those two words. So we're going to look at this office from three different angles. We're going to ask three separate questions. Number one, what is an elder? Number two, who is an elder? And number three, number three, who keeps the elders in line? So first question, who is an elder? For that, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. So you'll be going backwards in the Bible towards the thicker part, just a few pages. If you're one of the church Bibles, that's page 929, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, we'll begin reading at verse 17, and then we'll skip forward to verse 28. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he, that's Paul, again Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Now skip down to verse 28, which will be on the next page of the Black Bible. And this is what he says to those elders from Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So look again at verse 17. This is the setting for my latest Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. First observation in this passage that I want to make is that church is in the singular. Elders is in the plural. One church, multiple elders. We believe Scripture is very clear on this point that it teaches a plurality of elders for one church. More than one pastor for each church. I think Scripture teaches this throughout. When Paul was telling Titus to get some elders raised up, he said, appoint elders in every town. Multiple men. When Peter exhorted pastors, he called them elders in 1 Peter 5.1. Always in the plural, an elder team. So then after verse 17, he explains his own ministry, and then he addresses the elders directly. And we can learn a good bit in verse, verses 28 to 31 about what an elder is from the instructions that Paul gives to these men. So from verse 28 to 31, we can learn at least four conclusions about what an elder is and what an elder does. At least four things. Number one, elders know the people. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Elders must pay careful attention to the flock, to all the people. So when your pastors call you or text you or ask you how, they're, how you're doing, we're not being nosy. We're sincerely concerned about how you're doing. We want to know because we care, because you are God's people. Because of what Paul says at the end of this verse, which any elder worth his weight would shudder to read again and again and again, people which he obtained with his blood. Cornerstone, you're just not a person who comes to Cornerstone every now and again when you can. If you are a follower of Jesus and part of his church, you're someone he obtained with his own blood and you are precious to him. And so if you are that precious to your God, your pastors must and ought to treat with you accordingly. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says that pastors have to give an account for the souls under their care. Which means that one day I will stand before the Lord Jesus and I will give account for my life. I will talk to my Lord about my wife. I will talk to my Lord about my children. And if you are a member of this church, your name comes up. I will give account for your soul as one of your pastors. 
So an elder must know his people. Number two, elders are given by God's people, given to God's people by God himself. Elders are given to God's people by God himself. Hear Apostle Paul again. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Ephesians 4 said the same thing, that elders are a gift of Christ to his church. The office of pastor is not the invention of man. It did not arise out of some pragmatic necessity because we needed someone to unlock the doors and pay the electric bill. Elders are God's gift to God's people for their good, for their joy, to equip them for the ministry to which God has called them. Number three, elders care for God's people. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And what are they to do? To care for the church of God. Now this may be one of the more difficult points for all of us to understand. Because we like to view ourselves as self-made, self-sufficient individuals. And much of that self-reliance has informed our understanding of leadership and authority. And so some of us push back against this notion that we need pastors to care for us. I can take care of myself. I don't need anyone to care for me. Needing someone to care for me sounds weak. Well, if you're feeling that in your heart, that should tell you actually how much you do need cared for. If the only authority that you know is the demeaning, oxygen-depriving kind of authority, I'm so sorry about that. I'm so sorry. Because that's not the servant-type, care-based leadership that the church has been given through pastors. When your pastors get together, most of our time is spent talking about you. You know, it wasn't too long ago that we decided to spend, I don't know, what, six grand on chairs. And we talked about that for probably an accumulative 20 minutes over the course of a couple of months. But we'll spend three, four, five times that talking about you. We'll take out a little paper like this one. Has your names on it, where you live, names of your children if you have them, some notes. And we'll kind of work through it. Talk about how you're doing, how we can help you. Is that strange to you? It shouldn't be. We are your pastors. Entrusted by your God for your care. We are to spend ourselves serving you, encouraging you, helping you, and equipping you for the work of ministry. Most of pastoral care is done through teaching, like we're doing right now, and through modeling. 
Pastors teach the Bible on the Lord's Day every week. We teach it through one-on-one interactions together. We teach it through classes that we sometimes hold. But pastoral care is also modeling Christ. Because so much of Christ-likeness is caught, not taught. So we'll talk more about that in a minute. But the point is, elders are to be exemplary Christian men whom God's people are to look to. One who is worthy of imitation. Number four, elders protect the people. Draw your attention to verse 29 through 31. Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Elders have the responsibility to protect God's church from false teaching and false teachers, which Paul calls wolves. This is why in Titus chapter 1, an elder is to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. To give instruction and to rebuke those who teach false doctrine. A pastor is called to reprove, rebuke, and to exhort in 2 Timothy 4. Certainly the first century was a time where there was no shortage of false teaching. And I don't know if there's more false teaching today or not. What I do know is that there's more access to whack teaching today than ever before. And so pastors must be alert against every wind of doctrine that would cause people to bounce back and forth and be drawn away into error. And so I want you to understand, if one of your pastors comes to you and shows concern for um, a teaching that you're into, a ministry that you support, it's not because we're vying for your alliance to our teaching. I don't want your alliance. I want your alliance to be the Bible. And I care for you deeply. And we would protect you from harm. We would would protect you from an imbalance, from wasteful indulgence. It's not because we think that you're dumb, it's not that we think that you don't have discernment. It's just that we know that with false teaching, there's no free lunch. There's always a price to pay for false teaching. And the people who pay the highest price are always the vulnerable, the weak. And we would spare you that if we could. Personally, I love when I hear you're listening to sermons, reading books about the Bible. I praise the Lord for that hunger that He has placed in your heart. I hope it continues. And I won't pretend to know everything that's out there, and I probably won't tell you what you can and can't read. But I will recommend this author and not that one for a reason. And so if you're ever not sure about a book or a a teaching, please just ask Pastor Brent or myself. 
And if we don't know, we'll do the research for you and get back to you on that. Well, that's what an elder is. A servant of God, given by God to help you, to equip you for the work that God has called you to do. That's question number one. Question number two, who qualifies to be an elder? Turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3. So that's going to be going that way if you're facing me. 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's a really easy book to find. It's right in front of 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3, that's page 992 of the church Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is who is an elder? Who qualifies to be an elder? We'll read verse 1 down to verse 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." There's too much in this passage to go line by line. I wrote an article doing just that. You're welcome to see. It's on the website. Uh, it's on the church website, and you're welcome to read that on your own time. But for this morning, I would draw your attention to five things in these seven verses. And we'll move through these five things fairly quickly. So if you're taking notes, you're going to have to write fairly fast. Number one, an elder is a man. I understand that other churches ordain women as pastors. That's a discussion for another time. There's a bunch of confusion about the role of women and men in the church. Much of that discussion is unhelpful to both. If you have any questions about that, please see me after. I'm happy to talk to you about that. Number two, an elder wants to be one. An elder wants to be one. Paul says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So there has to be aspiration. There has to be desire. He wants to be a pastor. First Peter 5 says that he has to serve willingly, not under compulsion. Ask any pastor's wife. Effective shepherding is a demanding work. And if he doesn't have the desire to serve God's people in that capacity, he will likely burn out. He has to want it. Number three, an elder exemplifies godly character. He exemplifies godly character. So Paul says he must be above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife. He must be sober-minded. He needs to be self-controlled. He needs to be respectable. He needs to be hospitable. 
He needs to be able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Titus chapter 1, verse 7 and 8 says much of the same thing. There, Paul says he must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant. He must not be quick-tempered or a drunkard. He must not be violent or greedy for gain. He needs to be hospitable. He needs to be a lover of good. He needs to be self-controlled. He needs to be upright. He needs to be holy. He needs to be disciplined. That doesn't mean that he needs to be perfect. But he needs to be the kind of man that no one would suspect of wrongdoing. He needs to be the kind of man that others look to his life as an example to follow. If we had more people like him, the church would be healthier. If we had more marriages like his marriage, the church would be healthier. He needs to be an example in the way he manages his household. He needs to be an example in the way he, ma- he relates to money. People look to him as an example in kindness, in hospitality, as he exhibits Christ. Number four, an elder must be able to teach the Bible. Paul says he must be able to teach. Because his office requires that he would be able to equip God's people for the work of ministry, he must have the ability to take God's word and communicate it to another person. I don't take that to mean that he has to be a good preacher, necessarily. He can hold his own. But he needs to be able to sit down with someone in in the faith, a non-believer, and to explain the Bible to that person, able to teach. And because he must be able to confront false teaching, he must know the real thing pretty well. For how will you know if teaching is imbalanced if you, unless you're balanced? How will you be able to, found, to spot a counterfeit unless you know the true thing? He must be tender enough to encourage the downcast and tough enough to rebuke false teachers. Number five, he leads his family well. He leads his family well. We see this in verse four. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? I don't know much about finding a CEO, but I suppose most companies, when they're looking for a new CEO, don't really consider that man's family life. But an elder is not a CEO. In the family of God, his family life matters, and it matters a lot. If a brother can't seem to get around leading his wife and children in a Bible study, What business does he have standing behind the pulpit and leading God's people? If he still lives at home with his parents and can't remember to feed his pet hamster, then he has no business caring for the church of God. These, these are souls obtained with Christ's own blood. 
Friends, God was not lax in obtaining his people, and he will not be lax in entrusting them to fools. For a nice little commentary on that, take some time and read this week Ezekiel chapter 34. This church currently has two elders. Pastor Brent and myself have the privilege of serving in that capacity. Last Sunday evening, we went to the membership and we asked them to consider two more. We handed them the qualifications drawn from this passage and from Titus chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 5. And we asked them to compare those men to those scriptures. And Lord willing, we'll appoint elders, elder candidates next month. That's what an elder is. That's who qualifies to be an elder. And so lastly, we ask about accountability. Who keeps these dudes in line? Who do they answer to? And the answer to that question may surprise you. Point your Bibles to the book of Galatians. It's going to be backwards in your Bible, page 972. Galatians chapter 1. This is where we will end our time together this morning. Galatians 1, beginning at verse 6. I am astonished, this is Paul again, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. Strong language from the Apostle Paul. Now I would point out the obvious thing. When Paul was writing the book of Galatians, he was writing it to Galatians. He was writing it to a church, to actually to churches in a town called Galatia. So you need to know that because when you read you in verse 6, you should be, re- you should be hearing y'all. You all, churches, church people. The whole church. And so this is where this connects to what we learned last week. Paul is placing the responsibility on the congregation to ensure that what they are hearing is the true and real gospel of Jesus Christ. And to affirm it. Yes, that's what the Bible teaches. Yes, that's the gospel as the scriptures have explained it. And then here, Paul adds the responsibility to the church, mind you, to the church, to y'all, to do something when the false gospel is being taught. Verse 9, as we've said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to y'all a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Please understand, part of your responsibility as a member of this church is to know the gospel well enough to know when you're being taught a false one. 
Acts chapter 17 records the noble people of Berea who, Luke says, received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I would implore you to do the same. Every week that you come and you sit in these chairs and you hear the word of God preached, receive that word eagerly. Come to church hungry to hear God's word. Receive it eagerly. But please, don't do your pastors the disservice of just leaving it there. Take what we say and balance it against scriptures. Examine it daily to see if that's what the the scriptures teach. Why is this so important? I don't know if I can overstate why that's so important. Because friends, if you get the gospel wrong, you lose God. Wrong gospel, wrong God. Look at verse 6. Believing a false gospel, the Galatians were in danger, what does Paul say, of deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. You leave the gospel, you leave God. That's what's at stake when we gather together on a Sunday morning. Everything. Everything. This is how God's people affirm the gospel and affirm those who belong to it. They read the Bible themselves as they're taught the Bible by qualified men, as they're helped by those men apply the gospel, as they spend their lives helping others do the same. This is the anatomy of a church. And so I hope through today and through last Sunday, you're beginning to see that church is more than 90 minutes a week of singing and praying and sitting and hearing. It is time that we set aside every week for the sake of Christ, for the sake of brothers and sisters in Christ, to be equipped so that we can bring glory to God by helping others follow Him. And be a part of God advancing the gospel in our lives and through us. Until Christ becomes all and in all. Amen. Please stand for the prayer of confession. At the end of our services, we take a moment and we reflect on some of the truths that God has revealed to us in the Word, and as we seek to understand what it means and apply it to our lives, we recognize that we're not walking them out perfectly, and so we go to the Lord collectively in prayer, and we ask Him to forgive us for those things. And so if you would, please, please bow your heart in prayer with me. Heavenly Father, Creator of heaven and earth, God of all grace and mercy, Will you hear our prayers today? Lord, we thank you for Jesus. 
We thank you for his perfect headship over his church, over your people. We thank you for teaching us today what it means to be a member of the household of God. We thank you for giving this little church elders, men who will spend themselves helping all of us grow in the knowledge of God and in the grace of the Lord Jesus. How kind you have been to us. Lord, we confess to you that there are parts of us that resist this notion that we need cared for, that we need helped. There are sections of our lives that we've inoculated against help, hidden it, for fear that it would be exposed, for fear that we have been seen weak, for fear that we would not have been truthful about how things really are. Lord, forgive us. And forgive us for having treated church as if it were a club, something we do when it's convenient. And forgive us, Lord, for treating with indifference the very thing that Jesus died to build. And Father, enable us, your people, to know you, to know your purposes. Open our eyes to one another. Help us to see one another. Create in us a love for one another, a desire to help one another, to encourage one another. And Father, make us wholly unsatisfied with our Christian experience if we have divorced it from the purpose of helping others follow you. Lord, you've joined us to these people, and we thank you for that. We thank you for them. Would you embolden us to see them as brothers and sisters? Would you humble us to serve them? Humble us to rely on them. And may the gospel of Jesus Christ advance in us and through us until Christ becomes all. Amen.